What is the one surefire way to know whether or not something that we're doing is a sin? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, June the 13th of 2011, and I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys, and thank you so much for joining us today. We know that you have literally tens and tens of thousands of other podcasts to choose from, and so we're blessed that you've chosen to listen to us today. Thank you so much for downloading this message. I hope you guys are doing well. Some of you who have been um, following us for quite some time, you probably realized uh, that it has been probably two or three weeks since we last put a message out. And yeah, I'm sorry about that. I have just, uh, I've been going crazy busy here in Washington State, not only preparing for um, for this half marathon that I've got coming up next weekend, uh, but also just just church life, just church business. Uh, it, it's it's really uh, one of those things that you know, it's that's my job. And um, so yeah, I don't have as much time to devote to the podcasts as I used to. But we've been doing these podcasts, we've been doing these Romans lessons for four years. So there is definitely no intention uh, in my mind to uh, to stop now. Uh, basically, you've probably noticed what I'm trying to do is I'll do a Romans lesson one week, and then I'll put up one of uh, one of my sermons the following week. So every other week, you're getting one of my sermons, uh, and then a Romans podcast. So uh, we definitely plan on finishing the Romans study. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, we're winding it down here a little bit. We've got a couple more chapters to go. Uh, we're getting there. But, uh, but yeah, don't worry. We will uh, finish the course. We will finish the study. We, we will get through this book eventually. So, anyway, hope everything's going well for you guys. I hope you guys have been enjoying uh, John's lessons in First Peter. Uh, great book, great study, and uh, John's a, a neat guy. I hope you guys are enjoying that. Anyway, we do have a lesson to get to today. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do want to make sure that we've got a message uh, that that feeds you and uh, gives gives you you know the next installment in our study here in Romans. So let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word speaks so much, uh, so relevantly into our lives today, into our world today. God, our request is that our time and our attention be focused on you today, and that through this lesson, as we study your word, we would become more drawn to you and become more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, any, um, any pastor or teacher or pastor teacher who is worth their weight in dirt is going to be more than happy to allow their teachings to be questioned or scrutinized. And the reason that I say this is because a good teacher, a really good teacher, wants to make sure that they're teaching something that's true. They want to make sure that what they're teaching is completely accurate. Somebody who refuses to allow their teachings to be questioned or scrutinized 
probably just shouldn't be teaching, honestly, because the teacher should not only fully believe what they're teaching, but they should also be so concerned with the truth of the matter that they want to be the first to know if they're mistaken about something. Knowing that a good teacher must be willing to allow their teachings to be questioned and scrutinized, uh, it's something that I've always welcomed regarding my own teachings. And some people write me, you know, two, three, and, and sometimes even four years after I taught something here on the podcast, and they tell me that they think I was wrong about something, or that they disagree with something that I taught, uh, you know, back then, years ago. And from time to time, my response is to tell them that I agree with them. Uh, I disagree with what I said back then, too. See, I'm a, a student of the scriptures, just like you are, hopefully. And that means that I'm still learning a lot of this stuff, just like you are, hopefully. And that means that I'm not always right about absolutely everything, believe it or not. (laughs) But you know, honestly, there was a time in my life when I might not have actually spoken those words so easily. I'll be the first to admit that. However, as I've grown in my walk with the Lord and in my knowledge of the scriptures, one of the primary things I've noticed is that there are really only very, very few people who seem to agree with me and with my interpretations uh, about absolutely everything. Very few people agree with me about absolutely everything. And I've got to be okay with that. In fact, if you were to figure out the ratio, you'd probably find that uh, the people with whom I disagree about some non-essential matter uh, outnumber the people with whom I agree with just about everything, about 99 to 1. Uh, One of the things that I've really been convicted of as I've grown in my walk with the Lord is that if I only love and respect and welcome those who agree with me about absolutely everything, essential and non-essential, I won't have a whole lot of people to love. And if I only love those with whom I agree about everything, the truth is, I only love myself. And that wouldn't be right, would it? All that to say that I'm learning to peacefully agree to disagree with people about non-essential matters. It's the essential things that unite Christians as brothers and sisters in the Lord, and yet it's sin when non-essential things divide us. Let me give you an example of this. I had a gentleman and his wife who were coming to my church for some time. And after their first visit to the church, I followed up with them by calling them on the phone and inviting them back to church. And the gentleman told me that he and his wife had lived here in this area for about 12 years and that they've been to dozens and dozens of churches. And he told me that I was the first pastor to actually follow up with a phone call. And I asked if they had ever settled on a church during those 12 years, and he told me that they hadn't. That's a little bit of a red flag. I'll come back to that, though. Uh, Anyway, a few months after they had started attending our church, I got an email from this gentleman in which he expressed disagreement with me over something that he heard in the message that I gave the first week that they visited with us. And yeah, that was a little bit odd. The disagreement was over Ephesians uh, chapter 4 verse 11 and my interpretation of that verse. And this is where Paul writes, and he, that is Jesus, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And I had stated in that sermon uh, that the last two things listed there, pastors and teachers, are actually one in the same office. 
each of the offices listed here in this verse is preceded by the words, and some as, except for pastors and teachers. Well, pastors is preceded by uh, some as, but teachers isn't. And that's because I believe that Paul was referring exclusively to people who are gifted both as a pastor and a teacher. A pastor isn't a pastor teacher, and a teacher isn't a pastor teacher. Imagine two circles that overlap, and one circle represents pastors, and one circle represents teachers. And in the spot where they overlap, there you have pastor teachers. That was what Paul was referring to there. And so I believe that Paul was referring exclusively to people who are gifted both as a pastor and teacher. And in fact, this is the same interpretation you'll find in the commentary put out by Dallas Theological Seminary, and you'll also see it in the ESV footnotes uh, that they also hold to that interpretation, that pastor-teacher is one office. But this gentleman was sure that I was mistaken, and he got really, really upset with me over this issue. Uh, In fact, this gentleman got so upset that he and his wife stopped attending our church. And that's really unfortunate because this isn't an essential issue. Whether or not uh, pastor and teacher are two offices here, or if they're one office here, it's not an essential issue. There's definitely room for different opinions, different interpretations of this verse. Now, that's not to say that there's more than one correct interpretation. No, there's only one correct interpretation. But this is absolutely not one of those issues that's important enough to divide followers of Jesus. Now, obviously, I can't say for certain, but I do suspect that the reason this gentleman and his wife hadn't settled on a church in 12 years of living in this area is because he leaves a church as soon as he disagrees with the pastor about absolutely anything, whether that would be something essential or not. And here in our Romans text, We've seen that Paul understands the temptation to divide ourselves over non-essential issues, issues which ultimately don't have any significance as far as salvation goes. And thus, he's confronted this temptation head on. In our study of Romans 14, we've seen Paul use two illustrations that demonstrate the unity that we're expected to maintain despite differences on non-essential issues. The first thing that Paul used to demonstrate this was the issue of food. Some people feel like they should not eat meat, and some people feel like they're free to eat whatever they want to eat. Well, Paul's instruction was to maintain the unity of believers despite differing opinions and not to judge their opinions. The second issue that Paul used was the issue of which day a person should choose to worship on. And again, Paul told us that it shouldn't be a divisive issue. The reason that a person sets one day aside instead of another shouldn't have anything to do with other people since that day is being set aside for the Lord. So the issue boils down to this. Does the person do what they're doing or believe what they believe in an effort to be pleasing to the Lord? As long as their actions aren't sinful and their beliefs aren't heretical, We must leave the issue between them and the Lord, trusting that the Holy Spirit will do his job a lot better than we're capable of doing his job, right? So Paul's now going to summarize the reason for leaving morally neutral matters and opinions between an individual and the Lord. And so he writes in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 to 9, For not one of us lives for 
himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living." Now, before we begin digging too deep into this, we should first make note of the fact that Paul is not addressing people who have not trusted in Jesus for their salvation here. So when Paul refers to us, he's not referring to humanity in general. He's not talking about all people uh, as a whole. No, he's only talking about followers of Jesus. This is something that we see throughout the New Testament. For example, when Paul writes that Christ is the head of every man, we know that he's not referring to all men in general. No, he's referring exclusively to men who follow Jesus. So the fact is that no follower of Jesus is able to honestly say that they live and die for themselves, for him or herself. As long as we're alive and breathing, we belong to the Lord. That means that everything that we have belongs to the Lord, because if we don't possess ourselves, how can we say that we ultimately have ownership of the things that we possess? No, only the lost, only those who have not trusted in Jesus for their salvation live for themselves. The person whose faith is in something or someone other than Jesus, and their own name would be at the top of the list of their false gods, by the way, but anyone who does not trust in Jesus is a person who lives for their own sake and for their own sake alone. Now, at the very initial moment that a person trusts in Jesus for their salvation, they no longer belong to to themselves. They no longer live or die for themselves. Prior to that moment, prior to the moment that a person puts their trust in Jesus for salvation, the individual is at the center of their own universe. Everything revolves around them. They live for themselves and for their own temporary pleasure. But the moment that they become a new creation in Christ Jesus, they belong to Christ Jesus. They are exclusively 100% his. Why? Because there's been a price that's been paid for us. The blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins on Calvary. And our passage today puts it in black and white, very clear language for us. We are the Lord's. We belong to him. Now the question's this. If God gave you something to take care of for a season, would you do something to it or with it, which would dishonor the same God who allowed you to borrow that thing? I mean, if we're being brutally honest, we'd all have the same response, myself included. We'd say, you know, we shouldn't dishonor God with the things that he's entrusted us with, right? We shouldn't, but we nevertheless do. It's called sin. We shouldn't sin. We shouldn't do it because our lives belong to God, but we do it anyway, from time to time at the very least. We won't be perfect. We won't be sinless in our lives until we receive our glorified and imperishable bodies. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the future resurrection of believers, writing, it is sown, that is, it's buried in the ground. It's sown with a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. So this imperishable body, this body that will not perish, it will not break down, it'll be free of decay and aging. Why? Because it won't be affected by sin. 
it won't be affected by sin because we'll finally be completely freed of our Adamic nature, our nature from Adam. As Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who has begun a good work in you will keep on perfecting it until the day of Jesus Christ. What we see then is that this summarizing statement is really just a call to us. It's a call for radical, extreme, sold out, holy living. No exceptions and no excuses. Being radical with our holiness. We will someday have to give an account to the Lord for the things that we've done with and during the new life that we've been given. Speaking of the day when we give this account of our lives before the Lord, Jesus said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. That's from Luke chapter 12, verse 48. So what has the Lord given you? Well, for one thing, he's given you a body and a mind, right? Are you taking care of those things? You've also been given very specific spiritual gifts. Are you using them? What are you doing with them? See, everything that we do as followers of Jesus should be done in a way that reflects the truth that Paul is giving us here. We live and we die for the Lord. That should be reflected in our relationships with other believers and with non-believers as well. It should be reflected in the movies and the television shows that we watch. It should be reflected in where our money goes. It should be reflected in our workplace, not only what type of work we do, but also how well we represent Jesus by being a diligent worker while also being an incarnational presence in the workplace. As a follower of Jesus, if you want to learn how to become more and more sinless, you must learn how to constantly live for the Lord instead of living for yourself. Anything that we do for our own sake or for our own pleasure ultimately becomes something that we use as an excuse to attempt to kick Jesus off the throne of our hearts and replace him with ourselves. Our passage today tells us that our relationship with Jesus takes priority over absolutely everything. Everything. Every single aspect of our lives must reflect that relationship. That relationship that we have with Jesus has given us a new identity, and there's nothing more important than that relationship or that identity, not even life and not even death. Paul tells us here that the reason that Jesus died and rose again was so that he would rightfully be Lord of all. And so therefore, if our freedom in Christ causes us to behave in a way that hurts other believers, or if we use our freedom to set up stumbling blocks between a fellow follower of Jesus and the Lord himself, we're actually abusing our freedom. That means arguing and dividing ourselves over non-essential issues. Yeah, we don't want to do that. That means unnecessarily causing a fellow brother or sister to sin. The emphasis there on unnecessarily. And I say unnecessarily because I don't believe that we're always responsible if a brother or sister in Christ stumbles because of us. Not always. Let me illustrate the difference. Let's say that you have two women who come to church one Sunday, and one wears a tight miniskirt, and one dresses very modestly. Now, if a man in the church uh, lusts after the woman in a tight miniskirt, yeah, he has sinned, right? He's, uh, he's sinned in his heart. Has she caused him to sin? Has this woman in a tight miniskirt caused him to sin? Well, 
you know, he's responsible for his own thoughts, but at the same time, the woman in the tight miniskirt has unnecessarily set him up. She's put stumbling blocks right in front of him. Common sense should tell her that wearing a tight miniskirt or wearing anything that's revealing and could cause somebody to lust after her uh, is going to draw the eyes of the guys in the church, right? On the other hand, if a man stumbles at the sight of a woman who is dressed modestly, uh, it's not her fault in any way that the man allowed his imagination to get the best of him and caused him to sin. Does that make sense? And by the way, the same could be said for a guy who shows off his, you know, his physique that he's spent hours in the gym perfecting in church, you know, by by wearing a, a you know, a muscle shirt, a, you know, a tight shirt that shows, you know, how ripped his his abs are and how bulging his pectoral muscles are, you know, versus a guy who wears uh, something more modest than that. So the last thing that I want to point out here is how this fits into the larger context of the chapter at hand, chapter 14. See, we're talking about the unity of believers here, and the issue is really avoiding division over non-essential and or morally neutral issues. This passage should force us to be asking ourselves, am I treating my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as though they belong to Jesus? If our answer is no, we have to realize that something has to change. Something in us, by the way. Something in us, not something in them. If every follower of Jesus has been united with Jesus, and chapter 6 shows us that they have, then ideally we should be treating every other follower of Jesus as if they were actually Jesus in the flesh. The true motivation for Christ-likeness, for becoming more and more like Jesus, should be a desire to live a life that's pleasing to God, not a misdirected need to meet the expectations of other people. With that in mind, let's focus on holding each other accountable to the essentials, and let's leave the non-essentials to be an issue between them and the Lord. When we do that, maybe we'll find that God has as many things, or more, to change in us as he does in the brother or sister in Christ, whom we're so eager to judge. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. And God, we realize that we are a sinful people. We realize that we don't constantly live for you the way that we should. And so God, we ask for your forgiveness for the times that we take our eyes off of you. And we ask God that you will use the circumstances in our lives to continue making us more like you. May everything that we do be out of a heart that desires to please you, a heart that loves you. God, I pray that you will increase our faith, increase our love for you, and draw us closer to yourself. We thank you so much for this time, God. I pray that it will bear fruit in many lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. 
Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus.